Well, we're uh, in week five of our series on Second um, Timothy, and we're we're hearing this heart cry of the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son Timothy, and I can only imagine sitting in this pres- prison cell how badly Paul would rather be giving these instructions and these words to Timothy face to face. And yet, he has to write them out. And in God's providence, it is recorded and handed down through the centuries, and it serves to encourage and equip and challenge us today, even in the year 2020. Last week, we looked at um, the call for Timothy to stay with the truth, to cut a straight path. He is to purify himself, ensuring that he is uh, used for honorable uh, uses by God. He is to be kind, um, remember, avoiding those pointless quarrels, but gracious in correcting others. And remember, we said that All of these are giving Timothy a picture of what it is like to grow in Christ-likeness. Something we are all striving to do. And last week we ended with the image of a person who had once held the truth but departed or lost their way. And that through truth and love from the fellow believer can be restored to faith in Christ. So so the false teaching that can creep up from inside the church was really what we were looking at. And today, we're looking at that false teaching that can creep in from outside. Let's pray that God would help us yet again as we turn to his word for wisdom and power this morning. Father, we're grateful as we've uh, been singing this morning of your faithfulness, how faithful you are. And Lord, as we're going to look at today, the, the great difficulties that we face in this day, and yet you remain faithful. So Father, may we not take our eyes off Christ, may we not uh, fall into despair, but may we rejoice in the good news of the gospel. May we rejoice in the community, the body of believers for which you have provided us with, may we We rejoice in the salvation that you have given to us. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Okay, so what does he mean by last days? Now, many interpret this as the days right before Christ returns. So, in other words, every generation's day, uh, until it wasn't, and then it moved to the next generation. Right? Because, honestly, what generation has not thought that they were in the last days? I I tell people, I know these days are bad, and I know they're hard. But I still think that during World War II would have felt the most like it. 
massive persecution of the Jewish people, regardless of whatever your eschatology is. It just seems pertinent. Uh, war on a global scale, unlike any other time. And, and, and vivid antichrist uh, figures like Hitler. I would definitely have thought that that would have been the time. But no. The last days here that Paul is describing are the days of the church age. It's the time between the coming, uh, the two comings of Christ, between his resurrection ascension and his, his return, his second coming. So what will happen in the last days? There will come times of difficulty, times of stress, perilous seasons, times that were hard for Timothy to cope with, times that are hard for us to cope with today. So why does Paul bother to say this? Well, the beginning of verse 1 again. Understand this, that in the last days there will come time of difficulty. He says, understand this, because he wants Timothy to understand it. He's saying to Timothy, this is characteristic of the church age. It's not just a passing storm. It will always be so. Because you could think that there are these times of great stress and great persecution, and we just have to wait for that storm to pass over before we can arm ourselves and do battle with the enemy. Paul is saying there will always be difficult times around. This is the norm. There may be times of abnormal stress, certainly so. But by and large, you are never going to be safe from these as a Christian. So don't regard it as something dreadful, as, as if it was this dreadful thing that, that God has lost control of his church, that God has lost control of his universe. Because that certainly is not the case. So what happens in times of stress, we ask. And so we read in verses 2 through 5. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Unappeasable slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now these seem to come in pairs. And I'm not going to spend my time Looking at every single one of these, I think it's helpful, and I wonder if Paul did this intentionally, but the first pair and the last pair. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It, it, the summary of the force of this list says that these evil days come about when people cease to love God and become lovers of pleasure. Lovers of self, lovers of money. 
we are talking about people who have lost the concept of an, an eternal world. No longer love the Heavenly Father, but have become absorbed in this world, in this age, in material things, in self, rather than in God. And these false teachers are men of the world. Their message is centered on this world only and our experience here and now. It puts man at the center. And so it is attractive to people who are lovers of self. And there is the, I think, well-known line from chapter 4, verse 10, when Paul is talking about one of the people who used to work with him, where he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That exactly underlines that emphasis that he's making. This letter shows us the contrast between a proper understanding of the world with a focus on the world to come and an improper focus on this world. This world, as we know, is completely absorbed with itself. And it's not that we stand in judgment over it. We are caught up in it ourselves. Consider how the trappings of this world have invaded in our own lives. Consider materialism. Uh, the never having enough mentality, the keeping up with the Joneses mentality, the, the pursuit of happiness, the, the all-consuming feeling that we need to be having a good time, the, 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 that our children need to always be having a good time. And we get caught up in that, don't we? That's why we find it difficult in that stifling atmosphere to be lovers of God. We find it easy to be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, because that is the air that we are breathing every single day. And people say to us, there's nothing wrong with that. And and if we were to be truly, truly be materialists, then we go back and read verses 2 and 3. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without self-control, not loving good. That is our world, is it not? A materialistic world, which leads to arrogance and pride, where man, where self becomes the center of everything. And if we are honest, we can see where these have crept into our own lives. George Truitt, uh, of whom Baylor's seminary is named after, in his day, he was a well-known pastor, and he was invited to the home of a a wealthy businessman in Texas. And after the meal, the host uh, took Dr. Truett to a place where they could get a, a view of, of everything surrounding, all the surrounding land, and pointing to a bunch of oil wells uh, across the landscape, he says, you know, 25 years ago, I had nothing, nothing. Now, as far as you can see, that's mine. 
Then he looks in the opposite direction and he says, you see the sprawling fields of grain? Mine. Then he turns to the east and he says, you see all the the herds of cattle? Mine. Then he goes in the opposite direction and he says, all this land out here? Mine. And he paused, expecting Dr. Truett to compliment him on his great success. Truett, however, placed his hand on the man's shoulder, pointed up to the sky, and said, how much do you have in that direction? The man hung his head and said, I never thought of that. Now, let's look at verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. What's he saying here? Because these times of stress throw up these ugly elements of self-centeredness. It doesn't mean people will be agnostic or atheistic necessarily. We would assume that these people, these, these false teachers and influencers, would be miles away from the church. And that may be the case for many. But there are certainly some who definitely have a religion But it is a self-centered religion. One commentator says, His charge against them is more than simply hypocrisy. They make a great parade of Christianity and are active in preaching and practicing what they conceive to be the true faith. Theirs, then, is a faith that centers on self-ism. And since it is not centered on God, but on a love of this world, it is powerless to affect the world. Do you see the irony? If you have the true gospel of the New Testament, which is largely concerned with the eternal world, paradoxically, it has a great impact on this world. If you have a this-worldly gospel that is concerned entirely with man and his happiness, paradoxically, it does not affect him at all. It may encourage him to indulge himself, but it will not change him from being a lover of self, a lover of money, proud, arrogant, etc. Isn't that fascinating? You would think it would be the other way around. The people that are focused on this world and the things that are here, they want to change everything here, and yet they do nothing. But for those of us who have our hope and our trust in Christ, and we think on eternal things, have a much greater impact on the world we live in now. So the more the church loses its hold on the eternal world and becomes busy trying to make this world a better place without the gospel Sorry, without the real gospel, the more ineffective the church becomes. This is the case today, is it not? An evangelical community is not immune to this. Because so many evangelical churches are climbing on the bandwagon of changing society without the gospel. Now, Paul doesn't think much of people as we have described. He says we're to avoid them. Now, that doesn't mean that we uh, 
Again, we put on the white robes and we become monks up in the hills. It doesn't mean that we just leave the city or even leave the church. What it says is not to bring these people into the church. And I think that is a problem these days where these people are not being dealt with in churches. And so their teaching and thinking is not captured to Christ. And their teaching, as we saw last week, is spreading like gangrene. It it starts an infection of self-focused gospel. In verses 6 to 9, we see the, the religious propaganda that comes from these false teachers. It isn't simply that these people Paul is talking about are just sort of silly. You know, they're just sort of a distraction. They are intensely religious in a certain way. They have a message. uh, They make their way and they creep into households, as verse 6 says. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. Uh, Paul gets a bad rap here, I think. Because people think he's just harsh on women all the time. Uh, I think we need to be clear. Paul is not saying that all women are weak. He obviously has some specific women in mind where this did happen. As one commentary put it, these immature women were burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, their consciences were burdened, And thus they gave ready ears to imposters who promised to ease their guilt. Their unconfessed sin stood between them and God and made their reasoning faulty. Their sins, like an especially poisonous flu, left them vulnerable to worse diseases. How many people in our world suffer from this exact condition? Men and women. People who have some awareness of their not measuring up. Some awareness that there is a division between where they are and where they should be. And so there is a constant searching out of of means by which this can be corrected. of, Of means by which this can be made right. And in doing so, and turning away from Christ... And the offer of grace and the offer of forgiveness and hope and confession, people turn to shortcuts, which these snakes of false teachers come in with. And verse 7, even though they read a hundred books on false gospels, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, they pass over the truth. They pass over what seems to be a simple gospel, as if it didn't have enough strength or or it doesn't work fast enough. Listen, the gospel does unbelievable things. And most, if not all of us in this room, understand that. But it often takes patience to see its effects in many cases. We don't give up on it and then run to the flashy new a newfangled gimmick that comes around. The gospel is the only message 
with real transformational power. Some of the greatest missionaries of history devoted to the spreading of God's word. And yet they had to wait extremely long periods of time before seeing the fruits of their efforts. William Carey had to work for seven years before the first Hindu convert was brought to Christ. In West Africa, it was 14 years before one convert was received into the Christian church. In New Zealand, it took nine years. In Tahiti, it was 16 years before the first harvest of souls began. It requires patience, but it's worth it. Now Paul gives an illustration of what these false teachers are like. Verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres, I think that's how you say it, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. In Jewish tradition, these were the names of the, the wise men, the magicians that were in Pharaoh's court. Uh, they were the ones who were able to, in some way, on a small scale, replicate God's uh, miracles that were taking place um, the ten, of the ten plagues and attempt to show that they were just tricks, that Moses was just using tricks and magic. So what does this say about our false teachers today? Well, according to this, they have a corrupt mind and are disqualified regarding faith. That is to say, in their minds, even though they claim to be the enlightened ones, their minds are really actually corrupt. Though they claim to be men of real faith, their faith is disqualified. This is a common thing, theme uh, amongst those who have attempted to bring heresy into the church. They claim that they have special enlightened minds over the ordinary minister and that they have exceptional faith. Oh, if only you could have faith like theirs. So here are our false leaders. They claim to have special insight. They claim to have special faith. They are zealous in their proselytizing. And they were having an influence among influential people, but verse 9. Thank goodness for verse 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as that of those two men. What a comfort. What a comfort. Because how hard it is to watch and see these charlatans get up and proclaim a false gospel, and then we see how many masses follow them. It's disconcerting. But just as in Janus and Jambres' case, when Moses' staff turned into a snake by God's power, and they made their little sticks turn into snakes by magic, and Moses' staff ate the other snakes and then turned back into a staff, these false teachers will be exposed for what they are. Their failures and their falsehoods will be revealed. We're going to look more at that next week in light of what the ordinary minister is to do with the truth of the Word of God. But for today, as we get ready to conclude, what are we to make of all this? Is this just a bunch of strange verses? 
as it may appear to be to some. No, I think it is for us to beware of the inversion of love. What do I mean by that? When love for God turns into a love for self, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, you may, able to, you may be able to spot the false teachers. But as some of what they professed seeped into our own way of thinking. And so we need to be diligent individuals. We need to be diligent as a community that we would be examining our hearts and our minds, that we would confess these ideas that wage war against our bodies and our souls. Let us be people who love our Lord God with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And because of that, we love our neighbor as ourself. And let us be people with an eternal focus, knowing full well that this world and all of its material possessions will pass away someday. So let us focus on eternal things, which include the souls of all people. For we are all eternal beings. Everything in this room will pass away, except for each and every person in here. Every soul. We will all spend eternity somewhere. And so as we consider that, We have to allow the words of Christ to penetrate our hearts, that we allow truth and love to penetrate our hearts, and then we enact out of that. Let us be those people. Let's pray. Father, I confess sometimes I see false teachers and I laugh and I think how silly. How silly their message sounds. And then the camera or whatever it is pans out. And I see how many people are being affected by that false message. And it should disturb me deeply. And I don't want to have a heart that just says, poor lost souls. But I want to have a heart that seeks as we looked last week, Father, that would go to people in gentleness and bring correction. That we will be people who understand your word and your truth and what it says and how it applies to our lives and we can testify to the impact that it has had on ourselves, on our family members, on our community. And that people would have a a listening ear for these people who are trapped by these false teachers who who are so caught up in self. (laughs) Worshipping of self. Worshipping of money. Worshipping of the things that are of this world. But that we would have this eternal focus and that we would tell them about that eternal focus. And that would bring the change in the here and now. In this world. In this life. But Father, we don't do that apart from you. We don't do that in our own strength or our own learning that comes by the power of your Spirit in our lives. And so would we be people who are open and receptive to you coming in and dwelling in us, changing us, transforming us day by day into that likeness of Christ that we could call out the false teachers for who they are, 
and love the lost. Father, give us those hearts. Give us those minds. We love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. We pray all this in Christ's name.